We're in a small series for a couple of weeks called Encounters. Basically, it's how Jesus encountered sinners, how sinners encountered him and what Jesus said to them. Basically, it's how Jesus witnessed or proclaimed or what we might call evangelized. And of course, we're trying to draw from that what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to interact with others and remembering, of course, how we were interacted with one time ago if we're Christians. So last week we looked at John 3 and Jesus' interaction with a guy named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious leader. And this week we come to John chapter 4 to hear about the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. In fact, this week and next week we'll talk about this story because it's a long one. And so this week we'll get the first half in. The first 26 verses. Let's read these together. Verse 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about twelve noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, you Samaritans. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Such a very different scenario than John 3 and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a religious leader, this woman, a Samaritan woman, sort of famously sinful. They couldn't be more different, and yet it's clear, they both need a savior. John starts off Jesus' gospel ministry by, by dealing with one of the top religious leaders and one of the lowliest in society, at least from Nicodemus's perspective, a guy like Nicodemus, this woman. They both need a savior. Three things get this story started before we get to what Jesus is actually talking about here, the, the meat of what he's communicating to her. Three C's. He comes, he connects, and he communicates. And then we'll talk about some things under what he communicates in just a bit. But first, Jesus comes. Do you see in verse 4 those words? He had to pass through Samaria. What do they mean? Well, first, we should know that they're significant because passing through Samaria was not the norm for the average Jew. John is telling us something about Jesus' divine intentions to go into Samaria and meet this woman. He had to go to Samaria. He had to pass through, even if that transcends cultural norms. Now, it came up a number of times in Luke, when we were studying Luke some time ago, this thing of tension between Jews and Samaritans. Let me repeat it, even if it's redundant, who the Samaritans are. The Samaritans are half Jewish and half Gentile. They're the product of intermarrying during the, the exile period, during that time of captivity. Remember some time ago, before the captivity, God split the kingdom into two. There's the northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. It's part of his judgment on them. The northern kingdom was eventually sacked by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in, they took the they took Israel's uh, noblemen and rulers away to Assyria. And then they injected into that area different religions, different cultures, different peoples. And what happens then is there's more temptation as they inject those different peoples to that area. There's more likelihood of intermarrying going on. Now, God has always said to his people, you shouldn't intermarry. You should marry those who have the same God. It's, it's too close. It's too dangerous. Yes, be a friend of sinners, but don't marry those who have a different God. Your kids will maybe have a 50-50 chance of picking the wrong God, and you don't want that. So God said, don't marry those of other gods. Well, these of the northern kingdom married a lot of Assyrians. Basically, so much so that it became an extinct people. They became the Samaritans, a mixed breed, half Jewish, half Gentile. Their religion isn't as bad as it could have been. They, they held that the first five books of the Old Testament were Bible, were, were God's word. Didn't believe that the whole Old Testament was God's word, but they believed those first five books were. And they thought, as you saw later on in the story, that Mount Gerizim is the place where God is to be worshipped, not in the city of Jerusalem. Now, to the Jews of Jesus' day, they were seen as worse than heathens. Not just as bad as heathens, but worse than heathens. The Jews had a saying, 
If one met a Samaritan walking along the road, one should walk into a ditch rather than his shadow touch the shadow of a Samaritan. So a good Jew would walk around Samaria even though it took longer. That's the interesting thing of John's little verse there. Verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus goes through Samaria because he has purposes in Samaria. He comes. But then he connects. Jesus connects. In verse 7, he talks to a woman. He, he says to a woman from Samaria, give me a drink. Now, the first interesting thing is that he talks to a woman. This wasn't normal. It's normal in our day. If you're an outgoing person and you're waiting at a bus stop and you're a guy and there's a girl there and you like to talk to strangers, you do talk to strangers, it won't matter if that's a woman or a man. You, you'll start up a conversation. You'll say, where are you going? Which bus are you taking? What, what are you doing today or something? But in those days, it was not culturally acceptable for Jewish men to talk to women of any kind. One ancient rabbinical quote went like this. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife, because of the gossip of men. You wouldn't want people to think you were flirting. You wouldn't want people to think you were hitting on someone. And you wouldn't want people to think that even if you were talking to your wife, that that isn't your wife. So you just didn't talk to women. Guys didn't talk to women. And Jewish guys didn't talk to Samaritans at all, let alone Samaritan women. He talks to a Samaritan. And he asks her for a drink. Even though her bucket, her cup, whatever she has, would have thought to be unclean by Jews. Jews carried their own utensils with them if they were going through Samaria. You can't use a Samaritan plate. You can't use a Samaritan cup. One rabbi at the time said, he who eats the bread of Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of swine. So you can see her shock in verse 9. Verse 9, she summarizes it all. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, now in the Greek language, it, there's gender in nouns, right? So it's masculine or feminine. And here she's stressing, how is it that you, a Jewish male, Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. Gender is stressed. Race is stressed. Of course, there's that surprise that different religions would talk to each other. We live in a pluralistic society where it's, it's normal to talk about the differences of our religion. Oh, I know, politics and religion are the two things you don't talk about. But we talk about it way more than they would have. They would have thought that if someone is different, you don't talk with them. You don't, you don't do theological debate. You don't compare notes on what each other believes. She has kind of a bastard Judaism, we could say. Her race is different. Her gender is different. And there's the sin thing that we see later on, right? She has had five husbands and now is living with a guy who isn't her husband. And Jesus knows all this and asks her for a drink. It's fascinating on so many levels. One of which is this. We know where the story goes, right? The last thing we read is Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. If that's where it's going, why doesn't he just get there in a hurry? I don't know about you, but I'm kind of an impatient guy sometimes, and I want to just cut to the chase. If I know a story's 
going there. Let's just get there. Come on, let's not take the long road. If I have to confront someone, I'm just going to start off with that. Hey, nice clouds, nice weather. Yeah, let's talk, okay? Let's go after it. Let's just get to it. I don't like waiting for this. You'd think that Jesus would show up to this woman and do a poof miracle. I'm the Messiah. He'd open his robe and there'd be a giant M for Messiah. (laughs) I'm Messiah. Let's talk. He doesn't. He's patient. He slowly walks through life circumstances, questions, ideas with this woman. You know, it happens pretty fast. We read 20-some verses or so, but that's probably an abridged version of what actually took place. I imagine this conversation might have taken an hour or two. Pretty much every conversation we see in Scripture, we should assume, is an abridged version of a conversation. That's the way we tell stories, some of us. Right? Right? That's the way we should tell stories, right? So this is probably a scaled-down version. Jesus is here. Just show, John is showing us here just stages of the story and what was, con- what was said in the conversation. It goes slowly. Jesus is patient. You see, also by asking for water at the beginning, it says something about his humanity, and it's not just practical. I mean, part of it is he's thirsty. It says that at the beginning. He was tired, it's hot, he sits down. He doesn't have anything to get water from in this well. A well would have water down about 100 feet, so he can't just scoop it up with his hands. He needs a bucket. He asks her because he's thirsty, but there's something theological and not just practical about the fact that he's asking for water. He's a man. He's going to say that he's Messiah. He's going to talk about the fact that he's God. He starts out by saying he's thirsty. The humanity of Jesus is just as important as his deity And there's also something about his request for water that's endearing to her. There's something very relational about that. There's something that is putting his needs in her care. Now, in one sense, God needs nothing. In another sense, Jesus has emptied himself. When he came to the earth, he incarnated himself in flesh. And that flesh was, at first, the flesh of a baby. And a baby needs right? baby cries. It needs milk. It can't get milk on its own. It can't clean itself on its own. It doesn't know what to do even when it's supposed to sleep sometimes. Babies are restless. They need care. They need protection. They need provision. And here is Jesus some 30 years later. He's still a human being, and he still has human needs. He says to this woman of Samaria, can you help me out? He endears himself to her which leads to more talk. He communicates. Jesus communicates. He comes. What was the second point? I forgot it now. He comes, he connects, and then he communicates. And now several themes surface, some of which Jesus brings up, some of which the Samaritan woman brings up as they dialogue. It's like a tennis ball bouncing back and forth of questions and answers and topics being changed and exchanged. The first is water, thirst for water. 
In verse 10, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, living water to us, to us who are around the Bible from time to time, us who are reading the New Testament as we are able to, we already know living water is a spiritual metaphor for spiritual water, right? When we see living water, we know that means that Jesus is talking about life in him, salvation from him, refreshment from him. It's not about physical water, H2O. It's about spiritual water that refreshes and cleanses and satisfies and gives life. But in those days, living water meant something physical. Living water was water that came from a spring as opposed to a well. So you see this contrast. They're at a well. A well is a thing that holds water. The the water there is stagnant, right? It's not moving. And then Jesus says, can I have some water here? And then goes on to say, I could have given you living water. That's why she doesn't get it at first. She thinks he's talking about a stream. She thinks he's talking about a spring. So, living water is what Jesus is talking about. He's not just talking about that spring water, though he's talking about salvation. He's talking about satisfaction that comes in him. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get that he's talking symbolically. So in verse 12, notice that she asks, Are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, a well, well water was good enough for Jacob. You fancy yuppie with your spring water. You know? Well water was good enough for Jacob. He dug this well. First, you're asking me for a bucket because you, you don't even have a bucket. And then you're saying you've got spring water. Well, you don't need spring water, do you? Jesus doesn't let her get hung up on a debate about Jacob and the living water. He goes back to describing the living water, the true spiritual living water. He stresses that it's not the kind of water she's thinking, not a stream and not a spring. He says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks the water that I'm, uh, this water, the water you're talking about, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. First, he's talking about the kind of water that satisfies forever. No spring water does that. No perfect H2O does that. No reverse osmosis. No aquafina clean water does this. It still makes you thirsty eventually. No water satisfies completely. But Jesus is talking about an everlastingly satisfying water. He's talking about a spring that comes from within. It's swelling up inside of a person. That's not normal water. And he's talking about it welling up to eternal life. And yet... She still doesn't get it. Look at verse 15. Sir, give me some of this water so I won't be thirsty and won't have to come back here. On the one hand, it's kind of pathetic that she's so transfixed on the physical. He just said, I'm talking about water that satisfies forever, water that's inside, welling up, growing, flowing within you, and wells up and fills up all the way to eternal life. And she still says, that'd be great to not have 
to come back here with this big jar. Now, on the other hand, I think we should be sympathetic to this woman when we understand what's behind her words. Those words won't have to come back here. Remember, it's the sixth hour, 12 noon. Remember, they're alone, right? That's significant. It's the heat of the day. And women in this day didn't normally go and get water in the middle of the day. It's the hottest point. So you went in the morning or you went in the evening. And the morning and the evening, this well would have been probably pretty busy. Pretty, pretty busy with activity of women coming and getting water. They would talk. It'd be communal. It'd be some sort of relationship going on there, comparing notes about life and parenting and whatever. She's here alone. She's a cultural outcast. She's living with a guy who won't marry her. He won't give her his name. He won't give her a ring. They didn't use rings in those days, I don't think, but in our culture, that's what it would mean. He won't marry her. In the heat of the day, to avoid the chastisement of the busybodies, the community, she comes to draw water alone. Walking back, probably a mile back to her city with a, a jug of water on her head. To bring water back to a guy who's well, loving her body. A guy who won't marry her. So you can see something of the the brokenness of sin, the ugliness of sin, the hurt of sin. Yes, has this woman made sinful decisions that have led to this point in her life? Absolutely. Is it pathetic that she can't get what Jesus is talking about, that he's talking about spiritual water and not physical water? Yes, that, that's pathetic. And yet we should have some sympathy here for the ugly deception and brokenness of sin, the hurt that sometimes comes from the consequences of sin. She doesn't want to have to come back here. She knows the desert. You know our name, Desert Springs. It's a biblical theme. You should know that, right? This isn't just a, like, it sounds like a suburbanite community. Some people have asked me before, oh, Desert Springs, is that the name of the community of houses behind your church? No, that's not why we named it Desert Springs. It's in the Bible. Listen, Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, burning sand, which we know very well here in Albuquerque, shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The consequences of sin is that this world is in some ways a desert. It's dry, it's crusty, it's empty, it's thirsty. And the gospel, Jesus' life-giving news, is like a gushing stream to the thirsty ground of Albuquerque. Yeah, it's a pun because we live in a desert, but it's a biblical theme. It's also in Isaiah 44 where God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. 
When we say we're Desert Springs Church, what we mean is we're a church that knows the emptiness of this world and the dry and crusty life of sin, but Jesus is an everlasting spring of eternal life. Ecclesiastes talked about that desert, that dryness. Ecclesiastes is a book of King Solomon's pursuits for satisfaction and pleasure. And the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is that every pursuit for pleasure is essentially a trying to grasp the wind. You grasp at the wind. We're all grasping for it. None of us are grabbing and none of us really are fulfilled. None of us are satisfied. I've summarized Ecclesiastes before as four Ps. We're sometimes pursuing praise or acceptance from others as the means of our satisfaction or fulfillment. Some of us are pursuing purpose in life, meaning, fulfillment, accomplishments as that thing that will bring fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and contentment. Or possessions, security and stuff, pleasures also. Pleasures of celebration and food and drink. God made all things good. These had an original good purpose and God-fulfilling purpose. And yet in sin is like a cracked mirror. And the image is broken. And now we take a good thing and we make it a God thing. And it's empty. Thankfully it doesn't fully satisfy. The lie is, oh, if I had a different one I'd be fulfilled. If I had a new one, I'd be fulfilled. If I had a better one, I'd be fulfilled. And so guys try different cars and different girls and different jobs. And it's all grasping after the wind. This woman's a thirsty woman. We're all thirsty people. Christ is the only spring. So in Jeremiah 2... That desert again is talked about, the confusion is talked about where God says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, declares the Lord. For my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. You hear living water? You hear fountain that's flowing? And instead of having the fountain of living water, they have hewed out cisterns, tubs, wells broken cisterns that can hold no water. We pass up the spring of eternal life and we say, I I got this pool instead. But our pool is gross. It's moldy. It's dirty. And on top of that, it leaks badly. So you're thirsty. We're all thirsty. This woman was thirsty. You know, if Someone gets thirsty enough, like out in the desert for days and days, they eventually begin to either become very sleepy, give up, they want to just tune out, they want to just ignore, they, they want to go to sleep for good. Or, if it's around them, they'll pursue things to drink that you shouldn't drink. Like salt water, for one. Eventually, even though your mind knows the salt water is going to be bad for your thirst, not good for your thirst, eventually something wet has to go in and people often in an extreme thirst drink salt water to their death. Some people have been known to drink antifreeze if they're thirsty enough. 
and they die. But it seems to make sense. That's the way sin is. We either want to go to sleep and tune out. We want to leave this world and forget it all. Or we want to drink up more, drink up more, but we're drinking salt water or even worse, antifreeze in its death. This woman knows that well. She knows the thirst for water and she knows it specifically in a thirst for love. That's the second thing, a thirst for love. Jesus initiates this topic when he tells her, verse 16, go call your husband. And perhaps a little snidely, she replies, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus cuts to the chase. Yeah, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five. The guy you're sleeping with now isn't your husband. Jesus brings up her husband's and her current lover to, one, expose her sin. And that's a loving thing to do, right? He needs to to show her her need for a savior. He needs to be clear about this. But you can also see how this relates to that issue of thirst. That theme of Ecclesiastes, that desert land she lives in. She has been looking for love in all the wrong places. She's been looking for love now six times over. And I'm betting she's not too happy with this guy who hasn't married her yet. The sixth one. She's looking for love and not satisfied yet. So her response then, look at verse 19, is kind of a change of the subject and kind of not. I mean, Jesus says, you've got five husbands and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. That's pretty precise, right? So she says, "Uh, I perceive that you're a prophet. Like, that's just not a lucky guess. He nailed it. And then she says, so where do you think we should worship? Now, if you encounter people like this, you're talking to a non-Christian friend or family member, and you're trying to just nail down this thing of we're all sinners, we're all in trouble, me too, I'm included in that. Let's keep talking about sin. And they go, okay, so what translation though? You're like, what translation? Are you kidding? Come on, back to sin. No, sin's the problem. Sin's the problem. And they're like, yeah, but what about the Mormons? What do you think about the Mormons? And you're, Come on. So this lady's doing that. She enters a theological debate once Jesus brings up her husbands. How about your husbands? Hey, how about what church do you go to? In one way, she's really avoiding the topic, Right? From another perspective, though, maybe she's maybe connecting some things here. You know, she doesn't change the subject by going to the weather or by politics. She doesn't say, hey, enough about my sin. What do you think of Caesar? She actually says, what do you think about worship? Maybe she's saying something like, well, we've obviously established the fact that I'm a sinner. So what do I do about it? Where do I go? I don't even know where to worship. I don't even know where God is. You guys say in that city, and I've been told my whole life it's on that mountain. Where am I supposed to go? Yeah, I'm a sinner. That's undeniable. What's the fix? She thirsts for love. Yes, she thirsts for true worship too, doesn't she? You see that? That's the third thing. She thirsts for worship. 
There's some important background of the two different places of worship that she's talking about in verse 20. When the second temple was being rebuilt, books of Nehemiah and Ezra in our Bibles, the Samaritans wanted to come down and help the rebuilding process. The Jews wouldn't let them. So some hundred years later, a couple hundred years later, they built their own on top of Mount Gerizim. And a lot of bad theology is invented because you're mad at someone. (laughs) Resentment often breeds a lot of bad theology. So they build their own temple and then go back into the Old Testament and start reading a lot about Mount Gerizim and what happened there. And maybe this is the place, not even maybe, this is the place that God wants us to worship, not Jerusalem. You guys got it wrong. We got it right. Thank you for not letting us rebuild it. Thank you very much. Well, a couple hundred years after that, the Jews went up and destroyed their temple. Can you see the resentment here? The, you, you can kind of feel the tension now a little bit between Jews and Samaritans. This is multi-hundreds of years. You think of racism in our country in the 1960s and then realize that the racism in part was from hundreds of years, couple hundreds of years of slavery at the most couple hundreds of years, we're talking 400 years or so of this tension between Jews and Samaritans. So that's why she's asking the question of where do we worship? The Samaritans kind of thought, you dummies don't even have the right place. We'll build our own temple. And just in a sentence or two, Jesus, on the one hand, tells her that the Samaritans had been misguided. You guys are the ones that left the stream of salvation, the plan of God's redemption. But, he says, on the other hand, the issue is quickly becoming irrelevant because worship won't be about place. It won't be about doing. It won't be about physicality. It won't be about action. It won't be about ritual. It won't be about a temple. True worship is done, look at verse 23, in what? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth is a contrast with the question of where worship is to be done. So the first thing spirit and truth worship means is it's not about the place. There's a delocalization, we could call it, of worship. It's not about a temple. It's not about a place. Worship in the Old Testament was about burn this, cut this, lay this here. Go there. Say these prayers. And Jesus is saying, that's changing. The Spirit's coming. And when the Spirit comes, worship will happen anywhere and everywhere. In Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we don't say worship happens here. We don't call this a house of worship. We worship here. But we also worship everywhere. We worship in our singing together. We also worship when we mow the grass or straighten your rocks, whatever you do at your place. We worship whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. That was not fully realized in the Old Testament. 
The plan of God was that worship would get delocalized, de-externalized. That's a move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. John Piper summarizes this well. He says, worship is being de-institutionalized, de-localized, de-externalized. The whole thrust is being taken off ceremony and seasons and places and forms and is being shifted to what is happening in the heart. Simply put, Christian worship isn't so much about actions. You say, really? What about singing? We sang today, right? Yeah, I would actually argue that Singing is the result of worship. Worship happens in head and heart. Truth in the mind, warming and energizing our heart. And it's like a boiler. The heart is to be like a boiler. And when that boils, it needs escape. And that escape can look like raised hands or bowing low, or shouting loud. But the shouting itself is not worship, or else everyone at a football game is worshiping. Singing is not by itself worship, or every glee club and every choir worships. Worship is done in the heart. And that cherishing of the truth of God and the promises of God in Jesus seek escape in external ways. God is seeking those kind of worshipers. That's what Jesus is doing with this woman. He is seeking her as a worshiper. You know, primarily in the Old Testament, the ones doing the real heavy-hitting worship were the priests. They were the ones in the temple, in the inner parts of the temple, making the sacrifices, burning the incense, doing this, doing that. Well, what does the New Testament say? It says we're all priests. Jesus is getting this woman to come be a priestess in the kingdom of God, a worshiper of God. You know what this tells us? It tells us that salvation isn't just the forgiveness of sins. Salvation isn't just just the not going to hell. Just the removal of punishment. It's not just a rescue. The goal of the gospel is restoration with God. The goal of the gospel is reconciliation with the God that humanity parted ways with in the garden. The goal of the gospel is relationship. It's communion. It's prayer. It's worship. Forgiveness is the means by which that happens. We can't come into his presence unless we're forgiven, unless he makes us clean. Forgiveness isn't the goal. You getting out of hell is not the goal. Making you a restored worshiper is the goal. That's what he saved you unto. We are saved from our sin, saved from hell, yes, but we are saved unto good works, unto communion with him, unto worship, spirit and truth, worship. One more thing and we're done. What we read ends with a thirst for answers. There's a thirst for water, a thirst for love, a thirst for worship in this woman, and then there's a thirst for answers in verse 25 and 26. She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. 
you really see some resistance, even some persistent contempt on the part of this woman. We have to be careful not to read our imagination of tone into the Bible, but I think we should look for what is tone already there in the Bible. Does that make sense? We don't want to read angry tones if, you know, God isn't angry, that person we're reading about isn't angry. But I think we should try to connect dots. So let me just try to do this real quickly. Look at verse 9. You see this woman, Samaritan woman, saying, How is it that you, a Jewish man, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? Seems like a little sassy there, doesn't it? A little defensive, a little contempt. Verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. So where are you going to get that living water that you're talking about? You're not greater than Jacob, are you? He thought this well was good enough. Look at verse 17. Woman said to him, I have no husband. That's her reply to go get your husband. Verse 20. Verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then verse 25. After Jesus has been persistent about the living water, that it comes from within, that it's unto eternal life, that it it flows and satisfies forever and ever. After Jesus has talked to her about the mountain and answered her question about where worship is going to be, telling her that it's irrelevant, it's going to be everywhere, it's going to be anywhere. She doesn't believe yet. She just throws out an all-encompassing doubt and agnosticism. We don't know, we can't know, but when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And then verse 26, look at that. Jesus tells her, the one who speaks to her is the Messiah. I am he. He's the Messiah. In fact, this is John's first I am statement. You should read through John sometime and just look for the words, I am, coming from Jesus. It's important because in the Old Testament, when Moses asked God, what's your name? When I go to Pharaoh and tell him that a certain God has sent me, what should I tell him your name is? And God tells Moses, I am. The goal of saying, I am, that's my name. What's your name? I am. What's your name? Me. That's my name. That sounds like something some crude Viking would do, right? Named himself self. Well, God is God-centered because it's the right thing. He should be the center of the universe, including his own universe. And so it's perfectly right for him to say it, even if it's wrong for mighty Vikings of old to say it. I am. The Greek goes like this. In fact, when you look at the Hebrew of the Old Testament and then translate it into Greek, it'd be two Greek words, ego and me. Now, first year Greek, you learn this. Ego is I, first person. A me is I am. All through the Old Testament, you see this, ego a me, if you're reading it in the Greek. Ego a me, ego a me, I, I am. That's one of these tender words, one of these precious words. 
You know, your name is kind of like that, right? If you hear your name, you, you turn around, right? I mean, even if your name is John, it's a pretty common name, you still have this reaction to go, oh, they talk about me? Right? So the way we hear our own name, Jews of the Old Testament would have had a very sensitive ear to I am. That's why it's so shocking when Jesus says things like, ego, a me, I, I am. He not only says to this woman that he's the Messiah, he says that God is sitting next to her. He's God. Now let's just read a couple of verses of the rest of the story. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. By the way, why 12 went to go get food is interesting, isn't it? 12 disciples went to go get lunch? I think Jesus was sick of them. Why don't you 12 go get some food and I'll sit here? <laughs> Hanging out with 12 guys for a long time. Yeah, you'd, we'd all get sick of them, even Jesus. All right, so the disciples come back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, her precious water jar, maybe her only water jar, the very reason why she made the one-mile trek out to the well. She leaves the jar there and went into town and said to the people, finally, the penny drops. She got it when he said, I am sitting next to you. I'm the Messiah. I'm he. I am. She went to the people and said, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Well, next week we'll see the rest of the story. Next week we'll see this woman, I think, be a believing, transformed, maybe the first Christian evangelist. And next week, we'll look at how Jesus did what we saw him do today. We'll take some cues from what Jesus said in how we talk to others. But let's, for this week, just, just soak in the thankfulness of this message. He came to us, friends. He came to us. We didn't go to him. We're worse off than Samaritans. He came to us, and he connects with us, and he communicates to us. He's sympathetic about our thirsty souls. He's sympathetic about our thirst for love and our thirst for worship and our thirst for answers. And he summarizes it just like this, that he is the way and the truth and the life. All the answers come together on the Messiah who in flesh is I am. That's Jesus. That's our hope. That's where we go for eternal life. That's where we go for satisfaction and joy. Now, tomorrow, and forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word and for this wonderful story. We thank you for Jesus' love for sinners like this Samaritan woman. Thank you for his patience. Thank you for, Lord, his persistence to stick her to the topic at hand and to point her to himself. Thank you for Jesus who died in our place to forgive us our sins and give us this everlasting water to restore us unto the worship that we were made for and we've been so 
randomly and recklessly looking for in all the wrong places. Lord, we pray we would leave this place today fixed on Jesus, the soul-satisfying water of God. We pray, Lord, that you would make sense of all the stuff around us now. We pray, Lord, that Christ would get much glory, both as Lord and Savior, the object of our worship and the means by which we get to worship. We praise you for the lamb that was slain on our behalf.